by the end of the film, um, racism is solved is what happens. They, they solved it. They figured it out. And luckily, since 2005, we really have not had any issues with it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how much. I don't know how we can keep that bit going, but. Uh... Welcome to another episode of the McGuffin Podcast, the movie review podcast that dreams are made of. With me today, we have a special guest, Keith Foster, who is normally the co-host, is doing rehearsals for uh, a production of Murder on the Orient Express in San Diego. So he's not going to be on the next few episodes. But luckily, I've had this guest lined up for quite a while, and I've been excited to talk to him and bring him on the podcast. I want to introduce to the show from Seattle, Washington, Alan Almachar. Did I pronounce that correctly? Uh, Almachar. Almachar. Yep. I should have asked you before the show. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, Alan is the main film critic and now the editor of the MacGuffin website. And I believe you've been involved with the MacGuffin from its inception. Is that correct? Uh, I think I joined about a year or two after the site uh, got started. So, yeah, pretty early on. Okay, cool. So, uh, recently, there's been sort of a a sort of a change at the top of the, the MacGuffin, and you've only been recently promoted as the key editor, publisher of the MacGuffin. Yeah, editor, manager, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, probably within the last, I'd say, like, what, six months or something like that. Yeah, I, it almost doesn't feel like it's been that long, but I guess it's been a little while now. Yeah, it, it is kind of strange. <laughs> Time's <laughs> just flying during the pandemic. <laughs> Absolutely. And in that amount of time that you've been running the site, um, has it been like a, a, a significant uh, difference in the way that you sort of uh, approach the content on the website and and the, the workload, I'm sure, is is somewhat different? The when it first started, because uh, when um, the previous person who was running things um, handed it over to me, I was still, I mean, I was pretty new to the whole thing uh, on how to run a website, so it mm-hmm. did take a little bit of uh, getting used to and uh, adapting. Uh, but now that I've been doing it for a while, I have a, I mean, it, it, I got it on a pretty steady group, so um, it is a little bit different than what I had been doing previously, but um. Yeah, I mean, it's still a lot of fun. I enjoy doing it. So certainly, we appreciate you doing it, so mm-hmm. that we have you know a place to host this podcast and yeah. also um, uh, to provide all of the content that you do. I mean, you really, really bust your ass on these reviews, and I always tell people who are listening to the podcast to go back to the MacGuffin website, MacGuff.in to be able to look at all of the the work that you're putting out, you and some of the other writers, especially when it comes to these festivals, like um, the Toronto international film festival, the Seattle international film festival, um, South by Southwest, you guys pump this stuff out. Yeah. I, and I do appreciate you shouting, uh, shouting the site out um, on your podcast. I mean, at this point it, it's kind of like a, I kind of think of it almost as FOMO. Like I, if I don't re- like 
continue writing, I feel like I'm missing out on the, like the cultural conversation, <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's just kind of my way of kind of keeping up with everybody else. So. Right. Well, I mean, and you're being a little modest because I know that you, you've recently joined the Seattle International Film Critics Society, correct? Uh, yeah. The Seattle Film Critics Society. Um, I joined, I joined them a couple years ago and then just recently I joined the, uh, the online film critics society. Yeah. So, uh, you got to vote in your, uh, film critic society's best pictures of the year and things like that. And the, those are the, to a certain extent do have some effect, you know, these larger markets, the awards that those are given come out usually before the Academy votes and before uh, some of the major award ceremonies. And some of, sometimes that stuff can actually weigh a little bit on future nominations. Uh, yeah, that's totally true. I mean, you take a look at like drive my car, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it's a film that, you know, kind of came out of nowhere and through the, the support of like all the, other associations and film critic societies just kind of pushing it out there. It just rode this wave all the way to a, uh, to the Oscar nomination. So it, yeah, it, it's pretty cool to see something like that happen. Absolutely. But I want to talk to a little bit about how you got started, both just in writing about film, your interest in film and uh, how you got originally involved with the MacGuffin. Um, you know, I started in 2012 I mean, we've kind of known about each other at least that long now um, uh, because I was on YouTube board. I was looking for interviews with Miranda July. Okay. And you guys had posted one. You were one of the only ones at the time. Uh -huh. um, and I watched your interview, which took me to your website. And then, uh, you know, at the bottom of the site, I saw, you know, help wanted and, and went through that whole thing and, uh, you know, at first I was doing a lot of like opinion articles and listicles and that kind of material. We had been doing this podcast for a while and the original MacGuffin podcast, the MacGuffin film podcast had sort of been discontinued for a couple of years. So I was able to find a way to still contribute for you guys um, doing that. But how did you first, how did you first get involved with the MacGuffin? Uh, it actually was. Um from the uh, original um, podcast. Uh, I was uh, a fan um, of the show previously, and I had been listening to it for a while. Um, and I'd always had, you know, a passion for film, and I always wanted to write about um, movies. Um, so when I found out that um, the podcast also came along with a site that had written reviews, I reached out to the, the previous editor or manager um, and asked basic, you know, some basic questions on how to get started um, when it came to writing reviews and, you know, getting it published and shared. And he was basically like, hey, why don't you just write for our site? And I was like, great. So I, I sent in, a, a, you know, a, a test review. He liked it. And uh, it kind of just took off from there. And I mean, ever since I've been uh, basically writing, I consider myself a writer above everything else. Uh, we have done um, like video stuff. Um, mm -hmm. Mine, um, me and another contributor, we used to do a, a top five um, video thing back in the day. Um, but my my love has always been about writing movies or writing about movies. So, yeah, and you're you're a very thoughtful and um, you know well researched film critic. I I often go back and read your stuff after I've uh, you know been able to do my version of the review. 
um, either on the podcast or, or for the Idaho State Journal, which I still write for as well. And yeah, I, you know, both your your knowledge of film history and your perspective is is always interesting to me. And I, I'm always curious, especially if you've done your review before we did the podcast, mm-hmm. to know where it differs. Yeah. And that that's what I appreciate about what you and, and Keith do um, for, for the site as well. Uh, just being able to provide different perspectives, both in the written form and through podcasts. Yeah, I, it kind of like covers all the bases. And that's something that I really think um, we offer. That, that's something that's, you know, of value that we can do. So, yeah. So I assume because you were from Seattle and the original manager editor Spencer was from Seattle as well. And I know that he had worked for the Seattle international film festival that all y'all kind of met at the festival and then kind of started this like Cahiers du cinema via website thing. Uh, yeah. I mean, there was a number of us that uh, came from, from different, how do you say it? We came in from different angles, right? Some did come through SIF. Mm-hmm. Uh, we all kind of congregated at um, Scarecrow Video, which is like the big movie rental um, store here in mm-hmm. Seattle. It's one of the biggest in the in the entire world, and that one was, of the last, one of the last two. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's kind of been that was like our hub. That was like the place where we like got together and like started talking about movies. That's where we filmed the top five um, uh, videos. Uh, so that's kind of how we all got together and, and started this whole thing. So. Yeah, I, I was in Los Angeles for a while, and then I would often visit Cinephile Video and Vidiots and um, yeah. Cinematech over in Pasadena. And I love those kind of video stores that are like, okay, we know that this, you know, nobody has to go to a video store anymore. Right. So if we're going to do it, it we're going to really uh, formulate it around and a specific audience who really wants to be there and who's really in, interested in film. And it's not just about having 1600 copies of the latest fast and the furious on the wall, but about really curating um, a film library. Right. Yeah. That, that's exactly it. So if you're in a, a mid to larger city, you should see if your city has one of those. And oftentimes these, they're run by film societies as well. So you can actually, um, I know within the case of uh, the uh, with Vidiots, you could pay a monthly uh, amount and it, and it also gives you other sort of privileges like, you know, screening rooms and stuff like that. I don't know if Scarecrow has anything like that, but yeah, they, they have a membership program that uh, allows for customers to have like spef- special privileges. They can like mm-hmm. more movies for longer. Uh, they have like screenings and uh, talks there. Yeah, it's a really cool place for anyone that's interested. So. Uh, what would you say while you've been involved with, with the MacGuffin has been the coolest opportunity? The thing that I appreciate the most is, uh, being connected to the film community here in Seattle. Um, Seattle has a very large, very passionate, uh, um, group of people that are very dedicated to film. There's a lot of writers here, a lot of people that are very film centric, uh, a lot of filmmakers uh, out here. Um, so just being able to connect with them and uh, creating, you know, connections and, and friendships and uh, collaborating on reviews or special projects, all that stuff is the thing that I take the most out of this whole experience besides the movies, of course. So obviously. Yeah. 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 And I'm, I'm, 
just noticed today we're going to be reviewing the film Kimmy, which uh, premiered on HBO Max. Um, and at the end of the program, we're also going to be uh, reviewing your streaming homework, which is the controversial Oscar winner, 2004's Crash. Um, we'll be taking another look at that and kind of re- maybe reassessing it. But uh, Kimmy was actually shot in Seattle. And it seems like as of lately, that's become, you know, one of these cities, like kind of tertiary cities um, that are maybe a little cheaper to shoot in than, say, Los Angeles uh, or New York. Seattle's kind of having a moment right now. Am I wrong to assume that? It feels like I've seen like two or three major movies come out of there, whether it be Malignant or Kimmy or I feel like there might be something else I'm forgetting, too. Yeah, there. I've noticed that too. That there have been uh, quite a number of, of movies that have been uh, at least set in Seattle. Mm-hmm. Uh, in reality, most of them have been filmed in Vancouver, Canada. <laughs> oh, <laughs> uh, so when I, it's it's funny. I mean, I'm sure, like you know, people in LA or in New York or whatever, when they see uh, a movie that's shot somewhere else, they're like, "That's not this place." <laughs> <laughs> and that, yeah, that's kind of a kind of how. Uh, it is with with all these movies set in Seattle. It's like, oh, that is not Seattle. (laughs) (laughs) But it's cool that we're mentioned, so. All right, all right, yeah. Um, I guess we'll get into that a little bit more once we start talking about Kimmy. But uh, going off of this uh, streaming assignment that you you gave me, I wanted to talk a little bit more broadly about controversial Best Picture winners. And I looked up throughout the decades of what I feel are maybe some of the most egregious mm-hmm. or at least have been written about a decent amount. Sure. Um, and I just want to get some snap reactions from you. And we'll only use one barometer, which is, is it, is it more or less egregious than Crash winning in 2005? Okay. Gotcha. So that's, you know, and you can expand on that if you want to. Um, uh, and we'll be, you know, kind of be taking a look at the Wikipedia to see what it was, what these films were up against. But um, the first 1941, How Green Was My Valley, specifically beating out Citizen Kane, is that uh, more or less egregious than Crash? More or less egregious than Crash. That is a hard question. How green was my valley? This is that was the John Ford film, right? Yeah. Um, and I mean, looking at it from 2022, you could say it's more egregious. But if you put your mindset, you know, of the voters in 1941, mm-hmm. I don't know if it's worse. If it was worse, because Citizen Kane was, you know positively i believe positively uh reviewed back then but it wasn't like the the huge phenomenon that it is now um right i'm probably gonna say less i would agree i would agree and if you look at the year that it came out um you know we got suspicion the the hitchcock film the maltese falcon um looking here if there's anything else even little foxes i guess is is fairly well known but yeah, I, I guess it was well, it was it wasn't really until the early 50s or maybe even later that people went back and started talking about Citizen Kane as being this important film. 
Right, right. Uh, second on the list, 1964 with My Fair Lady. If we look at the nominees from that year, I think uh, Dr. Strangelove mm-hmm. may be a little robbed. I mean, certainly the mo- the edgier pick of, mm-hmm. of what's on there, Mary Poppins, uh, mm-hmm. Beckett, Zorba the Greek, um, and My Fair Lady. I mean, wasn't that one of those like studio tanking giant musicals? Uh, I don't know if it was a, one of those like, I don't know if it was a, like a studio tanking musical. Let or maybe say, I'm confusing that with Hello Dolly. Uh, well, let me say, let me say this. Uh, I love My Fair Lady. Oh, <laughs> one of okay. my favorite musicals ever. Um, yeah, I adore that film. Um, so I'm going to say this is less egregious than The Crash Win. Um, but if we're going to compare it directly with Doctor Strangelove, I, gosh, I would agree <laughs> that <laughs> it's not. It, it doesn't have the cultural full footprint that Dr. Strangelove has now, mm-hmm. uh, but I'm not mad at, at that one. I, yeah, that's a great movie. All right. Coming in, coming in hot with the, my fair lady love. <laughs> All right. Uh, jumping up the timeline quite a bit, but this is one you hear about a lot. Uh, Driving Miss Daisy winning in 1989. Um, you look at the other best pictures born on the 4th of July Dead Poet Society, Field of Dreams. I mean, I'm, that's actually fairly surprising that that was nominated. My Left Foot. So, I don't know. What, what do you think on this one? A lot of people really, really had a problem with this back in the day. Yeah, yeah that that Driving Miss Daisy uh, win is, is pretty bad. Um, and it, <laughs> it seems to be getting worse as time goes on, just looking back at that film and, and seeing the, the relationship between those two characters. It's just... I, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty egregious. Um, if, if I were to make a choice, I may go born on 4th of July for that year. Um, mm-hmm. is it more egregious than crash? I'd say it's equal. Okay. So yeah, you know, we jumped up a, a couple decades and the, the, uh, aggrievement has jumped up as well. Yeah. Um, I I really like Dead Poet Society as well. Um, but yeah, I, I maybe not like the strongest year. I feel like there are movies that came out that year. 89 was a big year. And I'm surprised, like, I don't know, maybe it, maybe like the zeitgeist hadn't changed enough or whatever, but like Sex, Lies, and Videotape and some other stuff that came out that year that wasn't even nominated. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, my uh, Driving Miss Daisy. Other than, I think, was that or Lean on Me? I forget which one came out first. Really, what put Morgan Freeman on the map? Mm, I think it was, I. I'm going to take a guess and say Lean on Me came out before Driving Miss Daisy. Okay. Um, next on the list, 1994, Forrest Gump, winning Best Picture over Four Weddings and a Funeral, Pulp Fiction, Quiz Show, Shawshank Redemption. So very competitive year. All, mm-hmm. a, a lot of those movies are still talked about a lot, yeah. um, in, including Forrest Gump. Right. Um, and there's a, there's a varied opinions out there about that movie. It seems like one that there's some movies where the, uh, you know, the conversation or the discourse has, has never really went away. And I feel like Forrest Gump is one of those movies. You, you, it's sort of a love it or hate it movie. 
Yeah. And when it comes to Forrest Gump, you have the the power of Tom Hanks, right? I mean, he mm-hmm. had just come off of winning the Oscar for Philadelphia, so his star was pretty Huge. bright at this time. Um, so I I can totally understand the the momentum it it, it uh, carried. Mm. Uh, this really should have been Pulp Fiction's win, though. And they won for uh, best original screenplay. Um, yeah. uh, Lauren Spender and and Quentin Tarantino and the the screenplay award. Uh, kind of feels like the hip award, right? It's the one that uh, is awarded to the the film that is like the most, I'd say, offbeat, but mm-hmm. they don't want to give it the best picture, right? Yeah, that you're totally right. That's 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 like the independent spirit award in the middle of the Oscars, right? Like it's <laughs> <laughs> it's like the ones with the wink and a nod to the people who really were hoping for more. Um, unless it's something like parasite that just like sweeps and, you know, does what it did, um, more or less egregious in crash. Cause you're also comparing it to Pulp Fiction. I love quiz show. I think that movie is highly underrated. Um, and, uh, Shawshank Redemption, which I don't love as much as like the IMDB users of the world. Um, but I do appreciate it a lot as a movie. Sure. Um, I'm going to say less egregious. I mean, Forrest Gump is still a beloved film that's still talked about today. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, is it a little, uh, is it a little overrated? Maybe. Um, <laughs> a little cloying. Yeah, a little, a little bit. Um, but yeah, I, I wouldn't say this is as bad as the, the crash win. No, I wouldn't either. I, I kind of like Forrest Gump. It's, it's cheesy. And I, I get the criticisms against it. And it, maybe it doesn't like, you know, the depictions of, you know, people who have different mental acuity or whatever. Um, not like super holds up now, but uh, I still I, I, I get it. It's a crowd pleaser. Yeah, definitely. All right. 1996. Maybe this became sort of a a meme because of the Seinfeld episode, but the English patient winning over Fargo, Jerry Maguire, secrets and lies and shine. Oh gosh. Yeah. Uh, I don't hate the English patient, um, but I love Fargo. <laughs> right. Uh, Fargo. Did Fargo win uh, uh, best screenplay? I don't remember. Cause it, it feels like it's one of those movies that would, right. It, I feel like it might have. I know Frances McDormand won for Best Actress. Yes, yeah, she did. Um, gosh, this one, I, I don't have much of a feeling for this win. I mean, The English Patient is fine. Uh, I, I don't hate it. I don't love it. It should have gone to Fargo, but again, I, it is what it is, basically. Right. I think people sort of got that, that old Hollywood Lawrence of Arabia. That big sweeping, big sweeping desert vistas thing that they, they 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 sort of wanted. I guess a certain portion of the academy, but probably the majority of the academy in 1996, wanted film to kind of go back to that. Maybe they were like done with like alt cinema, mm-hmm. um, and uh, yeah. But I mean, no nobody talks about that movie now. <laughs> More or less egregious than Crash, though. I'd say less. Yeah. I mean, I'm also, it's not necessarily I'm comparing the English patient to crash as a movie, but 
but for what it won over, um, yeah, I'm still going to say Crash is more egregious. Okay, 1998, not too many. This was like a thing that happened a lot in the 90s. Um, Shakespeare and Love winning over Elizabeth, Life is Beautiful, and most notably Saving Private Ryan and the Thin Red Line. Yeah, I mean, I'm sitting here looking at <laughs> Saving Private Ryan and the Thin Red Line just basically right next to each other like, what happened? <laughs> uh, right. Yeah, I mean, again, Shakespeare in Love is fine. I I don't hate it. I don't love it. But Saving Private Ryan is arguably one of the greatest war films of all time. Mm -hmm. It's one of Steven Spielberg's best films. Um, I think Spielberg won Best Director uh, for that movie. Um, And The Thin Red Line is just a poetic masterpiece. Uh, Right. And it was the return of Terrence Malick after years and years and years away from doing films. Um, and then I don't think he put out another, well, he did, no, he did the, um, Colin Farrell one not too long after that. Oh, the new world. Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. Um, and then he was kind of gone again until tree of life and then he's yeah. been super busy. Yeah. But yeah, I, I, I mean, saving private Ryan is, I think kind of the one to beat here. Um, I, as much as I love the thin red line, I get that that movie's not for everybody. Um, it is certainly, it's, it's interesting that both of those movies about world war two were, uh, released the same year and they, they couldn't tonally be more different. Right. Yeah. Um, but both very, very strong in their own way. But I mean, Shakespeare in love, it's, it's a nice little Elizabethan romantic comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, best picture material. This was back when. He who shall not be named and uh, Miramax Pictures had a lot of weight to to push around, and yeah, I think that had a lot to do with why that happened. Mm-hmm. More or less egregious than Crash. <laughs> Gosh, it's pretty egregious, um, just because of the just because of how great Saving Private Ryan and Thin Red Line is. Um, the Crash win is egregious for other reasons, right? <laughs> Uh, so for this one, I'll, I'd probably say it's about equal. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I would say even more uh, for me, I would say more only because uh, of what was being overlooked. It's just, that's right. insane. Right. Um, we're, now, obviously we're going to talk about crash and that's a very stacked year as well, but I want to save that for a conversation about the movie. Um, so I'm going to jump ahead a little bit and, uh, maybe not everyone feels this way, but I, I had lots of opinions when this happened. But two, 2010, the King's Speech winning over 127 Hours, Black Swan, The Fighter, Inception, The Kids Are All Right, The Social Network, Toy Story 3, True Grit, and Winter's Bone. This is back when they expanded the Best Picture uh, category by a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and not everything in here is. You know, like the kids are all right, was all right. I liked it that year. I haven't really watched it a lot since then. But I mean, there's you're saying, uh, you're saying the movie was all right. It was. <laughs> it was just fine. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, the fighter is a, a kind of other than some key performances. I, I don't think that it's like the best, but everything else on here, I consider 
some of the best films of the 2010s period. Uh, I don't know. What do you think? Are you a King speech Stan? What's funny is, uh, uh, so this year was, I think, either the first or second year that I actually started writing for the MacGuffin. And I did put the King's speech on my top list that year. Mm -hmm. Uh, Looking at these films now, I would probably revise my list (laughs) (laughs) because this is a stacked list of best picture nominees. And it's actually kind of crazy that the King's speech was able to beat out the likes of black Swan inception. I mean, inception created a word that we all still use in our vocabulary today. Right. <laughs> right? And then, of course, the social network, Toy Story 3, uh, True Grit. It's like, wow, what a year. And the King's Speech was the one that, that won it. So interesting to look back on it now. Yeah. I'm not going to, for me personally, this is not more egregious than Crash, but I had a lot of feelings when I, when I was watching this award ceremony. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> what about you? I would agree. I wouldn't say it's it's more egregious. It, I would say it's less. Yeah, because I at least like the King's Speech, but marginally more than, say, Shakespeare in Love. <laughs> right. All right. Last one on this on this list. Uh, this is a kind of recent one. 2018 Green Book. I knew you were going to go here. <laughs> <laughs> Over Black Panther, Black Klansman. Bohemian Rhapsody, The Favorite. Really? That was nominated? Um, I mean, I love that movie, but that is a weird movie to get nominated for Best Picture. Uh, Roma, A Star is Born, and Vice. Yeah, I remember this year very clearly. Yeah, to me, I, Green Book is its a bad movie um, in, yeah. in my estimate. Um, it's probably one of the worst Best Picture winners. Um yeah, it's just crazy to think that a movie like that would beat out the likes of, you know, Black Klansman, Roma, which I believe was the favorite, um, mm-hmm. and A Star is Born. Um, I mean, there was a reason why Spike Lee tried to leave the auditorium <laughs> when Green Book <laughs> won. Uh, so that was, that was a pretty funny story. But yeah, this was, this was pretty bad. Uh, I would say this is definitely more egregious than The Crash Win. Ooh, okay. Yeah. Um, and for similar reasons. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, I I was I went and saw this movie and my jaw was on the floor with how tone deaf it was. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, when you have a scene with a white guy trying to teach a black guy the pleasures of eating fried chicken. Right. You know, you fell off the track somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, that that is fun. We will come back to some of these discussions when we talk about Crash at the end of the podcast. But first, uh, let's go ahead and review Kimmy, the new Steven Soderbergh film that was released on HBO Max. And I will let you do the pleasures of synopsizing Kimmy. What's happening in this movie? Okay. So, Kimmy, so directed by Steven Soderbergh, written by David, is it Coep or Kep? I'm not sure how to pronounce his last name. I've always heard it, Kep. Kep, okay. So it stars Zoe Kravitz. Uh, She plays a woman named Angela. Uh, Angela is a computer programmer who lives in Seattle. Um, She programs or does the coding for this voice-activated assistant called Kimmy, 
uh, Kimmy's like Siri or um, what's the Alexa. Alexa, yeah. Yeah. Um, and her job is to kind of decipher these recorded uh, messages um, from customers and try to get uh, Kimmy to work more efficiently. Um, we should also mention that this story is set during COVID. Um, so Angela is stuck at home. She's a bit of a uh, agoraphobic. Um, she does not go out uh, of her apartment for basically any reason. Mm -hmm. uh, one day she is working and she comes across a disturbing recording uh, that she believes uh, is a recording of an assault taking place. Um, and she tries to decipher what happened, who was responsible, and try to notify the appropriate parties to, uh, to do something about it. And that is where the story takes off. Yes. Um, it's kind of a, a modern big tech take on sort of a rear window style Hitchcockian thriller. Right. And I think this is one of those interesting lower to mid budget Steven Soderbergh projects. Like he has right. his, he, he has his big movies. He has his oceans 11s and his, you know, uh, something like Contagion or or what have you um, that are kind of more blockbuster. And then he'll have these weird little indie side projects like Full Frontal or Bubble or oh, The Girlfriend yeah. Experience. Um, and this kind of feels like almost the connective tissue between those two modes. Right. Yeah. One of the things that Soderbergh is so good at is being able to move between those types of films and being like really, really good at doing it. Mm -hmm. uh, and yeah, you're right. Uh, Kimmy kind of exists in this middle ground where it's not like this big budget blockbuster, but it's not like something that was made on a sh shoestring budget. Right. And it still like basically follows a, a populist genre trappings of you know like i said kind of a hitchcockian uh thriller um you know sticking your nose where it doesn't belong and then all of a sudden you become pursued by shadowy organizations and that kind of stuff um so it, it goes into familiar territory but there's a there's a lot of interesting intimacy in dealing with the the lead character as played by zoe kravitz um, you know, her past traumas and how that fits into the narrative. Uh, and also the, uh, very handheld camera use. I know that, uh, Soderbergh had shot a film kind of recently on an iPhone and I didn't look into it, but was this shot with something almost like that? Cause there's some, there's some moves that happen. Uh, where, uh, you know, it, when you're doing a larger production, you would probably, you'd probably just have more coverage to choose from and, and, and kind of cut through it to, mm -hmm. to create those moves where here he'll, he'll do it in kind of one, one motion. He'll try and get the whole shot in, in uh, as few cuts as possible. Yeah. I mean, I, I didn't look into how, like what kind of cameras uh, were used in the making of this, but I, I, I totally see what you're saying in terms of how the camera moves and how uh, the action is captured um, with kind of like a minimal amount of cuts. Um, 
And you definitely see that uh, in the second half. I, I'm not sure if you want to get into that right now, but yeah, I, I definitely uh, see what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, I guess before uh, I don't want to get like too spoilery mm-hmm. um, as far as like, you know, uh, how things unfold. Sure. Um, but uh, the movie does definitely for as intimate and as small and as grounded as I guess it feels for the first two thirds of the movie. Uh, once it kicks into gear, it really pays off and uh, it, it, it allows itself to have fun with the thriller premise, even though it's dealing in heavy subject matter. Sure. I uh, am actually on the opposite side of that. Um, Ooh, okay. The, the, the first half um, was the most engaging part uh, of the movie for me. Um, when it makes that switch and kind of ramps up towards the, the middle and the, the climax, I started to wane a little bit. I'm, I'm not sure how, like how much detail we can get into. Um, but yeah, I kind of like found myself becoming disconnected with the film uh, in the second half more so than first. Okay. That's interesting. So they introduced the, the concept of this sort of Alexa like device. And I'm, I'm sorry for anybody who's listening to this podcast, you know, ar- around an Alexa device that might pick this up. But, uh, you know, that's essentially her job is to listen to these small clips and then correct, you know, if somebody said one thing, but you can clearly tell that they meant another thing, which, by the way, sans listening to accidental murders, that would be the best job. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I was kind of like, I could do this. And then, you know. Wait a minute. Oh, yeah. It kind of goes places I, whereas, oh, yeah, well, that, that, that part would suck. Um. But, uh, yeah, I mean, when they introduced this, this idea and then you kind of know where, where, where they're taking the idea, um, did you not see that it would, that it could, that it could go into those kind of territories or did it kind of take you aback at like how fully enveloped in the genre it gets? Well, uh, I'll say this. Um, so like you said earlier, Soderbergh is so good at kind of taking uh, these different kinds of movies, whether it's like a big blockbuster or kind of a smaller indie filming and really mm. adapting to it. Uh, this, for this film, uh, specifically in the second half, I kind of felt like I can feel how small the canvas was that Soderbergh was working with. Sure. Um, where the story goes where Angela goes, um, it, it just kind of feel, felt small to me. Um, again, I, I don't want to give like too many spoilers, but um, the way events play out and where she goes, um, it just didn't really uh, stick with me. Um, in the beginning where she discovers this this you know this possible crime and how she kind of investigates it and how she like follows the clues all while dealing with her own past trauma and her own anxieties uh, about the pandemic all that stuff i found really really engaging uh, my favorite scene is the scene where she uh cleans up the file to get a better audio 
um, so she can hear what happens more clearly and how she kind of imagines uh, uh, things playing out as she hears it happening. Mm -hmm. That for me was the strongest part of the movie. It never really gets back to that point for me uh, the rest of the way. Okay. that Yeah, that's interesting because, I mean, obviously um, the movie is working on a few different levels, one of which being, you know, a sort of rear window style thriller right. uh, uh, on a surface level. Um, on a subtextual level, there's definitely a lot here about like invasion of privacy and, and um, you know, these these different devices that we're putting in our homes and how much access are we really giving people without knowing it and how searchable are we, how protected are and is our privacy, our online privacy as a whole, as we're doing this podcast via zoom right now. And then on another level, there's uh, this kind of personal story about her and her trauma and this sort of being her character arc of getting over that trauma. And I feel like subtextually you could even read this as sort of a, the, her agoraphobia and her, and her personal trauma as sort of being a, a uh, cipher into the, the cultural trauma of COVID. Right. Right. Yeah. You, you could definitely see in the second half um, kind of, how her anxieties and, and the things that she had to suffer through kind of build up and act as a hindrance for her while she's kind of going through this investigation. Even though I don't really love the second half, I can see what Soderbergh and Kev were doing, uh, especially when it comes to, you know, victims of assault who try to get their stories out and they, they are either blamed or ignored or brushed mm -hmm. off. I totally understand all that. It's the actual like plot points, the actual things that happened that just didn't really work for me at all. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I, I was there along for the ride. I, you know, I kind of, um, I kind of accepted it. it. And it's also, it seems current enough, but it also sort of is like almost like proto sci-fi in a way. It's like, the yeah. near future, like maybe five, 10 years from now, like most people aren't wearing masks, but you see some people are still, yeah. and we've seemed to come out of the other side of this a little bit. Um, but maybe there's still some cultural hangover from it. So it, it seems to be sort of predictive and they'll, they'll mention, you know, straight up like big tech companies like Facebook and Google and Amazon, but the one that they're using is, is uh, invented for the story. Right. Um, so I kind of, yeah, I kind of was along for the ride and I actually think structurally, I don't have a problem with, with anything that happens. Um, and I think that it works well enough subtextually with all of the themes that they're juggling uh, actually fairly gracefully that you can still fit in, um, you know, what happens in the last 10 to 20 minutes of the movie, which I don't want to give away for people because it really does kind of go batshit in, in a way that I appreciated. Sure. Um, and I, I should mention that even though I have my reservations for the second half, I still think this is a, a good movie. Uh, mm -hmm. I think this is definitely worth watching and has plenty of uh, intrigue and, and suspense and tension to, to, to keep viewers locked in. Um, so yeah, it's still worth checking out. My only reservations with the movie um, 
for me is some of the dialogue, not necessarily from uh, or Zoe Kravitz, who I think is great in the movie. Oh, yeah. Um, and she's totally game for everything. But more so from some of the side characters or smaller characters that enter the movie that some of their dialogue was a little stilted. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some of the line delivery, like I, I was a little caught off guard at like the first scene where the the lead engineer of this tech is being interviewed. Oh, um, yeah. and it's just very like the actors are, you can tell are sort of just waiting for the other actor to stop so that the other one can say their line. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, it, it feels a little like they didn't get enough takes or something. Uh, and it, you, in general, the movie feels like it was made quickly, not necessarily rushed, but made quickly. Right. Um, and that really, other than that, like, you know, uh, some, some not so great performances and some kind of awkward dialogue. I, I, I'm was pretty much there for, for everything. Uh, I want to talk a little bit more specifically about Zoe Kravitz, because I think obviously she's going to have a big year this year because She's Catwoman in the new Batman movie that comes out next month. Mm-hmm. Um, I suspect she's going to be very good in that and is going to get a lot of, of attention. Recently, she she was in that high fidelity uh, television show. Oh, that's right. Uh, was. That was just canceled. And then she had lots of things to say about that online. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, yeah, you know, she's been kind of making moves um you know smaller parts in movies and um of course her mother lisa bonet who's on the cosby show and and was in the film high fidelity was a big actor and her father lenny kravitz uh, so she's been in the industry her, her entire life but there i mean there's very few actors uh nowadays that has that like cool presence on screen where you where you just want to watch their choices because not necessarily because they're doing a lot of acting with a capital A, but because they're just so confident on screen and it's so um, uh, committed to their characters that uh, it just exudes watchability. Yeah. She has great screen presence. I mean, for her performance here, she's able to balance the, the, the vulnerability and, and the, the, uh, the inner turmoil with the determination to figure out what's going on. Uh, she's, she's really, really good. It's interesting to see that. I mean, I first noticed her in, in uh, Mad Max Fury Road mm-hmm. and just see her like, you know, pop up here and there. And now all of a sudden she's like on the verge of superstardom. It's really, really cool to see. Right. And uh, she was in the film dope. I mean, I'd seen Mad Max Fury Road. Mm-hmm. Uh, same year actually as Mad Max Fury Road was, was okay. dope. Um, and she was in one of those divergent movies, which I did not watch, but, um, yeah, I really, I, I kind of noticed her in that. Um, and I've just been very interested, not only because of who her parents are and, you know, whatever, uh, but because I, again, there's like, she's, she's one of those actresses where she's magnetic on screen. She gives great interviews. She she seems like a very down to earth, normal person off camera as well. And I, you know, I just I'm rooting for her. I really hope that the you know after the Batman, she's going to be huge. Yeah, hopefully uh, soon the name Kravitz will mean something totally different. You know. <laughs> <laughs>
I did not look at your review because I knew we were having this conversation. We do grade these. Um, so I give the movie a B plus. Where were you on it? Okay. Uh, I gave it a B minus. So we're not, we're not too off on this one. Okay. Um, yeah. And, and I think movies like this that are kind of a little smaller, a little bit more experimental, a little bit more difficult to market. Um, This is exactly where these streaming platforms shine. Oh yeah, most definitely. And I don't know what a movie like this would do in, in the box office. If it had like a major theatrical release, Um, you know, probably have like a a limited uh, indie kind of run. Um, but, but yeah, I feel like this is a type of thing where somebody's just kind of scrolling through and they're like, Oh, Kimmy, I guess this is new. Um, I like Zoe Kravitz. I'll go ahead and watch this and, you know, they'll end up seeing something, you know, kind of cool. It's, it's almost like, uh, the Seattle tech hipster version of girl with the dragon tattoo. <laughs> I see. I see where you're going with it. And yeah, yeah, I can see that. <laughs> <laughs> um, much, much better than that awful girl in the spider web that came out, I don't know, like four or five years ago. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I barely remember that movie, uh, probably for a good reason. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's do it. Let's start talking about Crash. Okay. Uh, this is the 2005. Oscar winner. It was released in 2004. And there was also a crash television series that was made after this for Showtime, I believe. Did you watch that? No, I didn't even realize that there was a show. I think it was like two or three seasons. And it was one of the last things that Dennis Hopper did. Really? Interesting. Yeah, I don't I don't know exactly. I know it's not like based on the characters of the crash movie. It's like its own thing, kind of. Kind of based around the same idea, I, same premise, or like these multiple stories kind of things, which, in a way, is sort of more televisual than 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 you would see in a movie. Although at at the turn of the century, there were a lot of these multiple story movies. Um, Traffic by Soderbergh being one of them. Oh, Magnolia. Magnolia was a little bit earlier than that. Yeah, and uh, the hours, and um, there were. I don't know, a handful of these kind of like crisscrossy multiple stories and intersecting kind of movies um, that came out around the turn of the century. And they're all tackling important issues of the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, Crash was uh, written and directed by Paul Haggis uh, and has huge cast. Don Cheadle, Sandra Bullock, Thandie Newton, uh, Ludacris, Matt Dillon. And I completely forgot that Ryan Felipe, Ryan Felipe. Thank you. I completely forgot that he was in this. Um, <laughs> and he actually has a pretty big part too. Uh, Brendan Fraser is in this as well. Um, but basically this tells a story of uh, a bunch of different people who live in Los Angeles. Um, we have a story of a couple police officers. Um, one of which played by Matt Dillon is uh, very racist um, but he's also dealing with a sick father, which is sort of like aggravating him when he's off the job. And then that sort of like compounds into his racism, I guess, is what the excuse they're going with when he is on the job. Um, uh, Thandie Newton 
and uh, Terrence Howard play these uh, Hollywood types um, who uh, uh, get pulled over one night by these police officers and while getting searched, um, you know, something terrible happens and they're completely humiliated, which then causes like a rift in their marriage. Sandra Bullock and uh, uh, Brendan Fraser get their car stolen by Ludacris um, and his partner in crime. And then uh, Sandra Bullock becomes very, very paranoid and, and, and more and more upset about, uh, you know, her privacy and safety and starts to take it out racially. Um, Don Cheadle plays a, another police officer who's looking for his lost brother um, uh, while at the same time, you know, he's kind of like caught in a rock and a hard place because him and his brother kind of took different paths in life. He became a police officer. His brother became a criminal. And there's some commentary there about, you know, the uh, the statistics of. Uh, criminality amongst uh, different races. So broadly speaking, this movie is tackling the issue of race um, within Los Angeles specifically um, at this time. And, uh, you know, everybody has their own character arc um, and conclusions are made. And by the end of the film, um, racism is solved is what happens. They, they solved it. They figured it out. And luckily, since 2005, we really have not had any issues with it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how much. I don't know how we can keep that bit going, but uh. <laughs> <laughs> we'll leave it there. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I, that was the common criticism of the movie at the time. And still to this day is that it's it's kind of smug and self-congratulatory and a little tone deaf, maybe a lot tone deaf. Um, and uh, it feels like the writers uh, and the producers and everybody involved with the movie um, really feel like they're, they're like working on like a public service announcement announcement that's going to shake things up and talk to people on a gut level and uh, maybe to mixed results. Where do you, where did you stand on this back in 2005 and where do you stand on it now? Okay. So when I first saw this, Back in 2005, I thought it was great. I was like, this movie is so insightful. It's so well made. It's so cleverly put together, uh, so interestingly written and directed, and the performances were all great. Um, Roger Ebert, who famously uh, defended the movie, who had predicted that uh, it was going to win Best Picture, which it did, I totally agreed with his review. And then the other reviews started coming in, the conversation started to grow, and I started noticing that people didn't really like this movie, uh, to the point that some had put it on their worst of the year list, and I actually think it was put on a worst of the decade list uh, as well. And I was just so flabbergasted. I was like, how can people be thinking this? Ooh. Now that I see it in 2022... Yeah, it's pretty problematic. Uh, <laughs> and it's it's worse because I can see where where the intention was. Mm -hmm. uh, I did a little bit of research. And if you can forgive me, I'm going to share um, some quotes from Roger Ebert. Uh, oh, no, please. He, go ahead. He was a staunch defender of this movie. Um, I'm going to share two quotes. The first one I agree with. The second one I disagree with. 
Um, so the first one, Roger Ebert says, and I quote, it is a movie of raw confrontation about the complexity of our motives, about how racism works not only top down, but sideways, and how in different situations we are all capable of behaving shamefully, end quote. Uh, I totally agree with that sentiment. And I agree that the film was trying to convey that, mm -hmm. uh, how, you know, our experiences inform how we see the world and how we see each other um, more often than not uh, in a negative way. Um, and when you have a place like LA, that's such a melting pot of different cultures and people with different backgrounds, it would only make sense that there would be some clashes and some misunderstandings and how some people might fall into or be uh, swayed by certain stereotypes. All of that, I, I understand. Um, now, the second quote that Roger Ebert, uh, that pulled from, he says, is this just manipulative storytelling? It didn't feel that way to me because it serves a deeper purpose than mere irony. Haggis is telling parables in which the characters learn the lessons they have earned by their behavior. I disagree with that quote. Uh, I do believe that this is manipulative storytelling. Uh, I think it's very melodramatic in its situations and how all these characters kind of interact and interweave um, and just how, how they all like exist within this small bubble mm -hmm. <laughs> in Los Angeles. It's like, they just keep running into each other. Um, yeah, just seeing it now, th this was actually the first time I've seen it since 2005. And uh, the, the the issues with it are much more apparent to me um, than they were back then. Okay, yeah, that's interesting. I saw this shortly after it came out on DVD, um, rented it. And I think my the first time I watched it, I felt the manipulation a little bit. I was like, okay, like, you know, I, I, I wasn't a hater, mm -hmm. but I was also I was also not like deeply connected to um, what the discourse was generally. I was I was just watching it because it was a new movie with people in it that I liked. But I, you know, I was like, OK, like some of this stuff is a little on the nose, a little, you know, a little preachy. There's there's a uh, specifically there's the whole sequence with Michael Pena and his daughter and he's giving her the invisibility invincibility cloak. Right. And I'm like, okay, well that's going to come back in a bad way. <laughs> like, yeah. The, the way that scene, the way that particular story arc uh, culminates um, right. and pays off is arguably the worst moment of that movie. Right. And with, you know, actors who are trying to sell it as, as best as they can, but it's just, it, it, comes off beyond parody after a point and there's there's elements like that that kind of occur over and over again but um so that was the first time i watched it i was like okay it's it was it was good it wasn't my favorite of the nominees that year um and I, a few of them i'd seen already and and we should say this was up against brokeback mountain which was the favorite to win at the time because there was so much being written about that movie Right. Um, and obviously very groundbreaking for the time and, you know, a beautiful film in its own right. Uh, Capote, which uh, gave Philip Seymour Hoffman his leading performance Oscar. Um, my favorite movie of that year was Good Night and Good Luck. And I just 
so love the style of that movie. I love the performances. Um, and, uh, uh, yeah, you know, it's an issues movie that deals with it in a much more subtle way. Um, and then Steven Spielberg's Munich, which is not too shabby either. It, I think I was more forgiving of it the second time I watched it. Cause I had the DVD for a couple days okay. from Hollywood video or whatever. And then I watched it by myself the first time, the first night. And then the second night I watched it with my parents. Okay. And they were just like enraptured, really? you know, and just, yeah. And this was not like necessarily the type of movie that they would, that they would watch on their own or like, mm-hmm. um, but they were just like, Oh man, it was so good. And Ludacris was so good and whatever. Right. Um, so I was like, okay, maybe this movie is doing more good than I realize. And maybe it has a place. And, you know, I was, I was kind of like getting their joy through osmosis. That was the last time I'd seen it was in 2005. And I think, you know, over time I kind of, you know, I remember the movie pretty well. Mm -hmm. Um, And over the time I was like, I can kind of see like the the cracks a little bit more even more so than that initial viewing where the stuff that i thought was maybe a little annoying um mm-hmm. i realized like okay yeah this is a lot of this is pretty melodramatic and and pretty reductive to the conversation of of uh race relations in general um i mean the, the messaging of the film is, is entirely uh you know something you can agree with um it's just the way it presents that message mm-hmm. uh, and how it kind of you know, mishandles it. That's the issue. Um, yeah. I mean, right. a, a bunch of scenes of characters yelling and screaming at each other when probably a conversation could have, <laughs> could have resolved most of the issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Fairly melodramatic overall. I, I kind of want to uh, let, let's start with the stuff we like as, as, as far as uh, how we feel about now. Okay. Um, great cast. Yes. And a lot of pretty good performances, even though a lot of the stuff they're saying is um, so on the nose and nobody would ever have these conversations in the way that they do. Right. Um, and a, a lot of the times anyway, uh, there is, you know, a handful of very strong performances. I love Don Cheadle in pretty much anything. Right. Um, well, minus uh, Space Jam 2. That was pretty bad. <laughs> well, I mean, if we're, if we're on a sliding scale, then he's maybe the best thing about Space Jam too. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like that he went down with the ship on that one. Um, <laughs> I'm reaching. I'm reaching. <laughs> but generally speaking, I am pro Don Cheadle, and I think he's pretty good in this. Um, I, I really, yeah, uh, I, I think Ludacris and uh, what is the name of the other actor? I probably should know. I think they bring a lot of levity to this. Um, and I, I like their chemistry and, you know, he's an, he's an actor who's mostly known for being a rap musician. So especially at that time, I don't think he had done much. So he actually, you know, holds his own in a big movie with a big cast of professionals. Um, I love Brendan Fraser and I, he's one of those actors I always root for, especially to get serious work and to really sink his teeth into stuff. And um unfortunately he's not given much here both in screen time and you know what the script provides him to do but uh he's very committed and i believe his character even if um 
you know, he's only in it for like three minutes. And I think this is an interesting role for Sandra Bullock because at the time she was like the rom-com gal who was like, you know, quirky and offbeat and kind of, you know, girl next door. And she was generally cast to always be likable at this point. And here she gets to, you know, be high strung and complicated and difficult and definitely not likable. And I think um, she does it, you know, very, very well. Uh, And actually her arc in the movie is probably the least annoying for me. Interesting. Okay. Um, So that for me, that is the good stuff. And I think generally speaking, it's pretty well paced and it's pretty well edited. Those are those are my positive, and I, the cinematography is kind of nice. Okay, uh, okay. Well, I mean, for me, the, uh, you had mentioned it. The, the strongest element of this movie um, was Don Cheadle's character. Um, I think his um, uh, dynamic with his partner, played by Jennifer Esposito, was uh, felt pretty authentic. Mm-hmm. Uh, but on a on a on a deeper level, I think his character's relationship with his mom was the most engaging and dramatic element that uh, that we get here, um, and really plays into the idea of how sometimes people can see things the way they see it and not how it actually is. You know what I mean? And like, no matter how hard you try to uh, get them to see the reality of things, they just refuse to accept the truth. Of of certain uh, matters mm-hmm. uh, there's that scene uh, near the end um, that really hits that home. And I thought was the most moving um, moving moment uh, that we get. Um, I liked Michael Pena in this, uh, even though mm-hmm. his, uh, his character didn't really have a lot of opportunity to really breathe and expand. Um, his portrayal is great. You know, uh, like you said about Sandra Bullock, it's nice seeing Michael Pena in a role that isn't comedic. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, oh, I will mention, uh, Keith David's character. Um, the, 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 um, police officer, yeah. uh, his dynamic, he really kind of reveals like how certain characters are stuck between a rock and a hard place. You know, they reach a certain um, plateau in their career and they are forced to make a choice. If they choose, you know, the, the right path, they may lose everything, but if they just kind of go with the flow and keep their mouth shut, they may be able to retain that status. Um, I thought that was really uh, an interesting moment. Um, uh, Yeah, that's, that's really about it. Yeah, uh, uh, let's go ahead and talk about what maybe doesn't work as much now. I I think the stuff with uh, Matt Dillon and Ryan Philippe and also Terrence Howard and and Thandie Newton and sort of both of those arcs and how mm-hmm. they intersect and sort of how they conclude. Neither of them are earned. Neither of them feel. I mean, there's something that happens. I I, I mean. Has everyone seen this movie? Everyone's seen this movie, right? Um, essentially, Matt Dillon like sexually assaults Thandie Newton during a pat down when they're yeah. getting pulled over, and it's so awful, yeah. uh, and it's horrible to to watch. And then to then later try and redeem this awful character, 
And yeah. they put so much dialogue in his mouth and give him every excuse in the world to for why he's the way he is. And like he's dealing with all these issues at home with his father and nobody's listening to him. And he's, you know, has shitty insurance and and you know his father like did all these things for the black community and ended up the you know getting squashed out of his business because of i mean they don't say it but essentially like affirmative action like killed his father's business which is like yeah not really helping anyone's case here and then later you know there's these big redemption arcs that happens for this character and for and then sort of the opposite that occurs for for Terrence Howard, he kind of goes spirals out of, you know, from shame to anger. And then, and neither of those feel earned or natural or um, helpful to the themes of the movie. I think, and, and this is just a guess, but I'm, I think the majority of the criticism and the vitriol that have been put upon this film deals with Matt Dillon's character. Right. Uh, he's such a despicable character and the movie tries so hard to forgive him or at least provide a reason for his actions mm-hmm. that it just it really really does not work. I mean again, I understand the intention that the film is trying to convey that we are not perfect people, that we have our weaknesses, that oftentimes we can sin and be sinned against. I totally get that. But it's such an extreme depiction with Matt Dillon's character that it really, I mean, it falls into the abyss and there's no recovering from it. And it's so weird because Matt Dillon's uh, Matt Dillon was nominated for an Oscar, I believe, uh, for this movie. I think he's the only performance in the entire film that was nominated. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, for for such a such a really, really bad uh, depiction of a racist and a and a sexual offender. It's it's actually crazy to think about, you know, now all these years later, with you know the way things are in society, that you know Matt Dillon's character would have been seen in such a way back then. You know, right? Yeah, you know, I mean, I feel like there's that's I think the overall tone depthness of this narrative of the movie as a whole, you can kind of see in its worst extreme in that character where. Haggis kind of creates this, you know, reductio ad absurdum of, you know, casual racism into active racial violence and mm-hmm. and then allows for their a path to res- to redemption. And I'm not saying that like even the worst racists in the world can't see the light eventually, but mm-hmm. it's the way that it's depicted in this movie within just a couple days of events and you know how they occur you know i mean if this movie was being made now or made by a maybe more thoughtful screenwriter i think it would be a braver depiction to just have him suck right and just you know like because that's that's the real story and it's, it's not not everybody has like multiple dimensions of you know their their place in, in racial politics. Um, some people just suck and they're not going to get better. And it is part of like a systemic issue. And, you know, his is the fact that he's even able to keep his job when everyone knows that he's a racist. It's a problematic, it's a 
it's problematic for sure. And I don't actually, I don't blame Matt Dillon. I think he's committed. Sure. And I think he, he gives a, a decent performance at, at this guy, but it's just, it's uh, so misbegotten of a portrayal. Um, and then, yeah. And I, I think that that mirrors negatively on Terrence Howard as well, who, uh, who again, I think, you know, he does a lot of really great emotional performance here, but it's at the service of um, character motivations that are just completely irrational. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I, I, yeah. I, I like, I can understand the kind of uh, the, the, the turmoil and the, the conflict that's happening within Terrence Howard, Terrence Howard's uh, character. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you're right. That, 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 that um, climactic point where he just kind of lets out all of his frustrations and, and, and fears and, and, and everything and anger. Um, it's just, whoa, just such an over the top moment. And the fact that it's happening, who he's saying it to, mm. it just, it just feels so contrived and, and, and so put on and just does not feel like an organic moment. Um, it just felt like something that was written and performed with no subtlety. Yeah, there there seems to be a moment, especially towards the last third of the movie, when when these stories have to interconnect in, a, in such a way for the uh, the puzzle to come together, right. where the motivations are less about the character and more about making making sure that everything ties up. Yeah, making sure everything fit together, and that these people eventually cross paths, um, and th- and that's when it feels especially. Uh, manipulative uh, overall on everybody's part. Um, I actually think that you can do a movie like this and you could even do a movie with these characters, maybe even with similar events. Um, And it would work a lot better if the characters weren't constantly uh, soliloquying the themes of the movie in the dialogue. There's a lot of telling and not showing. I mean, the, the, the very first moment <laughs> right, the, the very, right. Right after the opening credits, we have a character uh, spelling out the entire theme of the movie, and it just gets repeated throughout uh, throughout the entire runtime. Uh, yeah, I mean, I agree that this is, you know, this type of story should be told, um, but it's how it's told and what perspective it's being told from um, that that makes all the difference. Um, yeah, I mean, it just feels like it's beating you over the head when you go from one scene of, you know, Sandra Bullock and, and Brendan Fraser, Michael Pena having these big arguments that are highly racial and, you know, they bring up, you know, white liberal guilt and like, you know, sort of feeling aggrieved that they uh, have to deal with that. And then it goes right into the Matt Dillon stuff uh, where, where he's just straight up, uh, using racial epithets and doing horrible things. And then the next scene you have Ludacris who's, you know, talking about like the racial politics of the sixties. And it's like, mm-hmm. we get it. Like we know this, we know what the movie's about. We just let the characters live in these worlds, let these events happen. And we can glean from, from how the characters behave that we to know that, that the, the, the race is the topic without having to literally spell it out every scene. It's, it's at a constant 
high wire light, right? It's just constantly right. operating at such a high tone and such an extreme tone uh, where how the characters speak and how they convey what they're feeling just feels so on the surface. Um, mm-hmm. it, the movie feels like it's teaching rather than just being, right? right. So, Yeah, and I think that's that's kind of where I'm at with it right now, which is it's like, I don't know if you've never seen it before. Is it a must see? I feel, uh, like at point, I feel like at this point, people would see it because of the controversy. Right. I mean, that's kind of part of the reason why I wanted to talk about it. Right. <laughs> right. And, you know, usually with these, uh, with these streaming homeworks, we, we tend to pick things that are, uh, f- you know, free to watch on, on, on a service. But I, I, uh, I, uh, lifted that this is a right now you would have to rent it for 399 on amazon or whatever um whichever vod service you prefer um to watch it so if they want to pay like five bucks to watch the controversial (laughs) best picture winner i mean (laughs) (laughs) right but i thought that this was an interesting conversation and i did kind of want to look at this movie again and feel it out especially given the last five six years of you know highly divisive racial politics um, that have been going on uh, in our country and all over the world. Um, You know, a lot of these conversations have taken on new light and have been, you know, kind of put on a microscope. And a lot of these conversations have been advanced so much further than, you know, what Paul Haggis was operating on in 2004. Um, I I mean, I mean, the reason why I, I picked this movie was because, well, one, we're in the middle of the Oscar season. So there's a sure. lot of talk about Oscar history. And because I feel like a movie like Crash, even though, you know, it's certainly problematic, it certainly has its issues, it certainly has its controversy, that it should be talked about uh, within the context of, you know, the Academy Awards cinema has had a long history of racial issues being depicted on screen. Uh, So at the very least, this is something that we can talk about and hopefully, you know, contribute to movies doing this kind of story better in the future. I agree. I agree. Um, And uh, the fact that Green Book won (laughs) in 2019, I don't know if those lessons were learned. Just kind of pulled the rug out of (laughs) of my entire statement, right? They they somehow combined the worst elements of Crash and Driving Miss Daisy in one movie. Yeah, that's... uh, that's uh, unfortunate. <laughs> <laughs> so going back to our original discussion of uh, controversial uh, best picture winners, what would you have given Crash the best picture over? Or rather, what would you have given over Crash out of the, what think, was nominated? I, I think Brokeback Mountain was probably the, uh, the movie that should have won. I have uh, uh, an affection for Munich. I actually think that's a really underrated Spielberg film. It is, uh, yeah, and really should be revisited by by people. I I really dig that film, um, but Brokeback Mountain probably should have been the winner. I think Ang Lee won director that year. I'm pretty sure he did. I think I think so too. That was like, I think that's what made Crash's win even more of an upset. I actually I remember that telecast. I think it was uh, Jack Nicholson who uh, who opened the envelope and announced uh, Crash as the winner, and I think. If you go back, you can actually see him go, whoa, crash. (laughs) 
<laughs> Those are always the best reactions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, really? We're doing this? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, for me, it's Good Night and Good Luck. I think that movie is um, still super underrated uh, and drips with style. And um, unfortunately, you know, we just talked about what was that movie? The, the, the tender bar, which is the latest Clooney flick. So he has not really lived up to the promise of his first few films, but good night and good luck was, was, uh, good stuff. Yeah. I like that movie. All right. Well, that is basically it for the episode. Uh, I got a bunch of stuff I say at the end of the show, but before I dive into that, if you have anything you want to plug here, um, go ahead and do it now. What? Where can people find you? Where can people read your stuff? And is there anything else that we should know about? Uh, you can catch my writing uh, over at um, mcguff.in. Uh, I do uh, weekly reviews. Uh, occasionally, I'll write uh, uh, an extended piece on a, on a classic film. Mm-hmm. Uh, so please check those out. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Mr. Alan Almachar. Um, I'm usually talking about movies and Seattle sports. Uh, <laughs> and that's about it. Yes. And also your love-hate relationship with uh, the Criterion Collection. Yeah. Yeah. The Criterion <laughs> Collection and me have a long-storied uh, relationship. <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs> um, all right. And if anybody has anything to say about anything that we talked about on this podcast or previous, uh, you can email us at McGuffinPod at gmail.com. You can also reach us on social media at McGuffinPod on Twitter and Instagram. You can leave us a star rating and a one sentence review over on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, Player.fm, whichever podcaster is your favorite to use. Uh, bump us up in the algorithm. Um, and you can read my reviews that I do weekly for the Idaho State Journal by Googling Idaho State Journal Arts and Entertainment. Uh, that is the section of the website that I'm in. Uh, check out Keith, uh, the uh, uh, my usual co-host. He has some stuff over at uh, Keith Foster Kid on Twitter and Instagram. And I believe he has an art account called at Sticky Note Aesthetic on Instagram as well. Alan, thank you for coming on. It was a pleasure speaking with you finally. And uh, yeah, I think we, this, was a, this was a fun episode. We, a lot of stuff to talk about. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure.